Hey, good morning to everybody. And um, just got a, one update here that uh, I wanted to mention. This should have made it in the bulletin, but it didn't. Uh, we've had a, a gentleman by the name of Matt, Mitch LaProd uh, in our prayer list for quite some time. Um, first of all, he just wanted to thank us for our prayers. His tests have come back. The, the numbers are good, and he's very thankful to God for that and thankful for the prayers that have been said. His wife, Aunt Peggy, is also expecting some test results sometime this week, and she's just asking us to continue to pray for some good test results for her. And so we'll, uh, we'll do that. And I'll, I'll mention that again tonight when we get back here. Well, it's Labor Day weekend, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, we're out for our last big fling. <laughs> Go somewhere, do something, whatever. But uh, then after Labor Day, you got to get back and get serious about things. And uh, I know next week we'll be back in full swing. God is good. All the time. All right. And he's on time every time. In the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, people were constantly being drawn to him. From the very moment of his birth, if you go back to Luke chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, just as soon as the angels quit singing and disappeared from the sky, there were shepherds who came to see the baby Jesus, came to the manger. A few months later, uh, the wise men from the east came saying, you know, we've seen his star in the east. And uh, we want to see him. We want to worship him. They were attracted to him. The very last uh, days of Jesus' life, it was the Passover before, the Passover which he was crucified. Some Greek-speaking Jews show up at the Passover, and uh, that means they were Jews from other parts of the world. And they came to the Passover, and they'd heard about Jesus. They come up to Philip. They knew Philip was one of the disciples. And they said, uh, sirs, we would see Jesus. They uh, were attracted to him. And that's something about Jesus that, uh, that I just want to talk about this morning. Um, people were drawn to Jesus for all kinds of reasons. Some of them good and some of them not so good. Some people came to see Jesus because um, they were just curious. They'd heard about him. They'd uh, heard uh, various things and they wanted to see for themselves. Some people heard about free lunch, you know. On two occasions, Jesus fed uh, first 5,000 and then 4,000 and free lunch. People show up for free food. And uh, others had heard about the miracles. And they came to either see a miracle or maybe even have one done for them with some problem they were having. A lot of these people who were initially drawn to Jesus eventually fall by the wayside. I mean, their reasons, if they were not very good, uh, it's pretty easy to for someone to lose interest uh, if their reasons for being there are not all that good in the first place. But I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I think I've pointed it out a couple times. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, this is the, uh, the very beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are the 11 or 12 verses which immediately follow. But it says when Jesus saw the crowds, and there's a crowd of people, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. First of all, there's the crowds at the bottom of the mountain. And then there's disciples at the top of the mountain who came to be with him. And uh, I, I always contrast those two groups of people. There's the crowds, and then there's the disciples. 
The disciples were willing to climb the mountain to be with Jesus. The crowd stayed at the bottom. And so um, I don't know what was going on with the crowds. Uh, some of them lost interest. Maybe they had more important things to do. They just couldn't work it into their schedule to go on up and be with Jesus. I, I just don't have the time. But you see this going on, this whole process. People being drawn, sometimes for not very good reasons, and they, they tend to fall away. In John chapter 6 and verse 66, Jesus has been talking about, uh, uh, about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now, he wasn't talking about that in a literal sense, but it would be possible to listen to what Jesus was saying and maybe take it that way. But there are a lot of people who listen to what he said there in John 6, and they were offended by it. And so it says in John 6, 66, at, at the very end of that chapter, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. These are people who listened and they were offended. They just didn't even listen to this kind of stuff anymore. It, it sounded too much like cannibalism. But there was always a core of true disciples who felt the pull of Jesus, and they responded to him by staying with him. Jesus talks about this uh, drawing power of his. Uh, everywhere Jesus went, people wanted to be with him. Jesus followed, uh, people followed him. People crowded around him to the point that uh, there were times when Jesus was just uh, looking for a place where he could be alone for a few minutes, maybe eat, get some rest, maybe pray. You see him doing that in the Gospels. He's just looking for a, a place where he can get a little relief. But Jesus talks about this uh, drawing power of his only two times specifically in the Gospels. But you see it happening over and over and over again. I want to look at five different places. I want to look at those two times when he mentions it specifically. And then there's three other times when I think you see uh, by what Jesus is saying that he, he understands that he is attracting He's drawing people to himself. The first one I want to talk about is uh, the drawing power of the word of God. And, and let me just say this before I, I get there. This is, I want you to look at Hebrews 13 and 8. Because I think we all need to understand that this drawing power of Jesus that we see in the Gospels is still around. It says right there, Hebrews 13 and 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And the drawing power that Jesus had on people in his own day and time, I think, is still uh, operational today. It's still there. And uh, he's still busy drawing people to himself today. The first one is this. This is found in John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. We're talk talking about the drawing power of the word of God. So let's read those words. This is Jesus talking. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we're talking about this drawing power. And I will raise him up on the last day, as it is written in the prophets. They shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Here Jesus talks about uh, the drawing power that's associated with the word of God. And since he is the word, and since he was all about the word, he taught the word, he was God's message to this world, that drawing power was with him. Part of the attraction is the message itself. And part of the attraction is the fact that the message is from God. Those two things, I think, account for all of this. And so, you know, people don't understand. They, they think of the Bible as a book that's like paper and ink and maybe uh, pages bound in leather. And they say, well, it's another book. It's full of great ideas and all of that. But there's something beyond just the ideas that are there. 
I think there is something about the Word of God. And it's not the book itself. It's not the pages. It's the message, and it's what God intends to do with that message. And so Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 tells us something about the Word of God. It says, For the Word of God is living and powerful, quick and powerful, active and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what Hebrews 4 and 12 says. And so it's not just a book. It's not just ideas. But there's something else going on there. He says the word of God is alive and it's powerful. And it's able to pierce right to the very heart, the very core of things. Even able to make a distinction between soul and spirit. And I don't know if you've ever studied this in the Bible or not. But to make a distinction between soul and spirit is not an easy thing to do. But he said the word of God makes a distinction between soul and spirit. And so it's a very precise, uh, a very precise thing. But when we open up the Word of God and we begin to read and study the Word of God, we will begin to feel the pull, the drawing power of Jesus on us through the Word. Our understanding of who we are and what we are begins to change. Our understanding of the world in which we live begins to change when we open up the Word of God and we begin to feel the pull of God's Word upon us. Our understanding of what's important begins to change. And we feel ourselves drawn to him in faith and repentance and holiness and obedience and service and sacrifice and all those things that God uses to bring us to him. And so when we open up the word, we are giving God a chance to change us, to draw us to his son. And we find ourselves considering things that maybe in, in a, a previous time in our life we might have thought was unthinkable. And I, I've, I've read Luke chapter 14 many times, but there's something there. I, I love Luke 14, 26 to 33. And this is where Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. And he talks about something there that just seems to me to be almost unthinkable. And, and, and he, he says, you know, you need to consider the cost before, before you make the decision to be my disciple. But so he begins to tell his disciples what has to be considered before they do. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Next verse. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And the last verse of that section. So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I want to know something. Jesus told us what it would take to be a disciple. He's explaining the cost of discipleship. And what he tells us the cost of discipleship is, is everything. Before you start, he says, I want you to consider that it may cost you everything to be my disciple. Who in the world would sign up for a deal like that? You'd have to be out of your mind to sign up for something like that. And yet people do. That's the drawing power of Jesus. He gets us to consider things that we would never consider before. Things are incredible. Things are almost unthinkable. He gets us thinking about those things and he draws us to him. And you see, there's no fine print with Jesus. He just tells you right up front. 
It's not like you uh, have to watch for that little fine print down at the bottom that's going to trip you up and make problems for you. He tells you in big print right up front, he said, here's the deal. It cost you everything, but you'll be glad you did in the end. It'll cost you everything, but you'll be glad you did in the end. Jesus said people would be drawn to him through the teaching of the word. There's a drawing power that Jesus has because of the word of God. There's a drawing power of the cross. This is number two. There's a drawing power of the cross on which Jesus, uh, on which Jesus died. And Jesus was talking about this in John 12, 31 and 32. He says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And John goes on to explain. He said, Jesus said this to indicate the means by which he was to die. Or I think he explains that in another place. He's talking about his cross. Talking about the fact he's going to die on a cross. And of all the things that Jesus said uh, to his generation of people, this has to be the one that makes the least sense of, of all of them. This just seems like non, would seem like nonsense to almost all people who were a part of that first century uh, culture, Roman and Jew. It's an incredible thing to say because the cross was one of the most repulsive symbols, the most repulsive, repugnant, frightening symbols of the first century. Crucifixion was the death that was prescribed for the very worst offenders. If you were an insurrectionist, committed treason, if you were a, a murderer or whatever, I mean, it, it, we're talking about the people who were in the maximum security on death row, that at the end of death row, there was a cross waiting for those who were punished by the Romans. Crucifixion was the death prescribed for the worst offenders. Crucifixion was used by the Roman government to create fear and dread and uh, terror in the heart of the people they subjugated. In other words, they, they crucified people if they, uh, just to create that fear in them that no one would want to defy them. Because if you do, you'll probably end up like this guy right here. See him? See that guy? You better listen to what I'm saying. Because we have the power to put you on that cross. And the Romans from time to time would, uh, would take uh, crosses and plant them every hundred yards or so along a long stretch of road. And, and crucify the people there and then at nighttime set the bodies on fire to light the way. That was a public lighting program for some of the Roman Caesars. And that was all done to create uh, fear, dread, terror in the hearts of people. And then you stop and think about what crucifixion meant among the Jews. The crucifixion, as far as Jews were concerned, was viewed as a curse from God. In Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, this is in the, the law that, that, that governed the Jews. It says this, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. Now, you have to understand that the Jews thought of crucifixion as dying on this, on this pole with the cross piece on it. They thought of that as being covered by this verse. Uh, you know, crucifixion was actually a refinement of impalement. And so impalement was usually done on a tree. But the Romans said, hey, let's, let's make guys, let's make people last longer. They're dying too quick. So put a piece of cross there. We'll let them hang there for a while. We don't want them to die so quick. And the Jew, when the Jew saw the cross, they said, hey, that's, that's, that's what this verse is about. And he says, he is to be put to death and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all, all night on the tree. But you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. In the mind of the Jew, the guy who was crucified on a cross was under the curse of God. 
So I just want you to stop and think about what Jesus said. He said, if I, this is John 12, 31 and 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus is talking about being on a cross. And he said, when I'm put up on a cross, people are going to be attracted to me. You know, if, if the average person in the first century would be running. They, they go hide themselves from somebody like that. But Jesus was looking down the way, and he knew that someday people would know his cross. Not as some hideous punishment designed to intimidate and terrorize people. And not as the sign of the curse of God on a man being crucified. But he knew that his cross would become the universal sign of forgiveness and love. One perfect sacrifice for all time, for all people, for all sin. The cross was God giving his son for us. And the transformation of the meaning of the cross has been so complete uh, over the last 2,000 years that you can put a cross up anywhere you want to, and people automatically think of the crucifixion of Jesus. It has no other meaning. They're not terrorized. They're not afraid. They don't think curse of God. They think, hey, that's what Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus died on the cross. That's, God gave his son on the cross that I could be saved. You don't even have to say the words. I know I've mentioned this before, but uh, years ago, I, forgot, I forget the man's name right now, but there was a West Virginia businessman who had been very successful in the 80s and 90s, and he created a fund where he was going to set up sets of three crosses all across the nation. I know if you've driven down the interstates or major roads, you've probably looked out on a hillside somewhere, and you've seen uh, those three crosses planted uh, off the road somewhere. I think if you go up 23, you can look off on the right. And there's a place where those, those three crosses are, are situated right there. There's no words. No one has to say any words or whatever. But people look at those three crosses and they know exactly what it's talking about. The two crosses were the, were the thieves on the outside. But the cross in the middle is different. It's the cross of Christ. And the cross says, that cross says to us, I love you. In letters ten miles high written across the sky. It's God's message to us. Well, people are just naturally drawn to those who love them. You know, we tend to stay away from people who don't love us, people who don't like us. We don't want to be around them. But we will seek out the people who love us and care about us. And the cross now draws all men to Christ because it stands for the fact that Jesus loved us, that God loved us. And Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. We're talking about the drawing power of Christ. It's the word. It's the cross. Those two things he mentioned specifically. And then there's some other, other things that Jesus says that, uh, I, that just draw people to him. This is number three. We're draw, drawn to Jesus because he is the bread of life. I want you to look at what Jesus said in John 6, 32 through 35. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, always, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And it's that... Uh, it's that thing that Jesus says about himself, I am the bread of life. You know, when we're hungry, which uh, that happens every day and probably several times a day, 
we start thinking about food and we start looking for food and we try and start trying to figure out where we're going to go or how we're going to feed ourselves. Well, Jesus knew there was a spiritual hunger, hunger in every person, something that we deal with on a daily basis. And he presents himself as the bread of life. And, and he knew that everybody has this hunger, this spiritual hunger. And I, I, I grant you that many people don't know what it is. They, 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 there's something going on inside of them. They don't understand what it is. They know they're hungry for something. They just don't know what it is that they're hungry for. But everybody's busy trying to satisfy that hunger. And if we don't know what the hunger is, there's a good chance we'll be putting the wrong things on our plate and we'll be filling ourselves up on the wrong things. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. There are a lot of people in our country right now that think they have tried Christ and they found him wanting. In other words, okay, I've already tried that. I've got to go off in another direction now. I've got to do something else. I've tried that. But, you know, uh, I, 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 can't, I can't believe that. Nothing could be further from the truth. What most people have tried and rejected is some over-processed version of Christianity, some version that bears little or no resemblance to the real thing or the original thing. They just, you know, they just showed up someplace that uh, uh, had a steeple on it and uh, associated themselves with that people and said, well, I've tried that and there's nothing to it. And so what they've tried is some over-processed version of Christianity. It's kind of like uh, the breakfast cereal hearings back in the, in the 60s. I, when I was about 14, 15 years old, I remember uh, Congress got all upset about breakfast cereal. Now, you know, they, they get themselves involved in all kinds of things, don't they? Sometimes it's important, sometimes it's not. But they were upset because the breakfast cereals, they felt, were, uh, were being falsely advertised. And, uh, you know, that was back in the days of Captain Crunch and, I don't know, Sugar Crisp and, uh, and, and, and cereals like that. And it, it basically, what, what had happened, this is what they were complaining about. They were saying that you cereal manufacturers take, take the oats and the corn and the wheat and all the stuff that goes into, uh, goes into cereal, and you mill it and fool around with it and process it until there's nothing left. Then you put some stuff back in, and you advertise on your boxes, fortified, like it's really good for them. All you put back in was a fraction of what you've milled out. And we, we think you need to change how you advertise this. You need to change how you process your cereal. And I remember the soundbite on the, on the 6 o'clock news. This was the NBC News. They had, a, had film of, of this one congressman who was holding up a box of Captain Crunch or something like that. And he said, he said, I hate to say this, but he said, there's more nutrition in the box here than there is in the contents of the box. We'd be better off if we ate the box instead of what's in the box. And all this is about being overprocessed and thinking that we're uh, uh, adding things in. And, and, and that's kind of what I'm saying about, uh, about so much of what passes for Christianity in our day and time. Uh, it's all being passed off as the bread of life. But it's bread of life that's been over-processed. It's, it's a version of a bread of life that's been fortified with uh, what I'll call junk science and pop psychology and, and uh, uh, political correctness. Until it's not even recognizable anymore. It doesn't look anything like what's actually in the Bible. And people get involved, and they say, there's nothing to that. Forget that. I've tried that. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the thing you're hungering for. It's me. I'm the bread from heaven. And when you realize this, when you understand, this is not just the, uh, the, the thing that me, you might have experienced in the past. 
when you realize this, you're drawn to him by your own spiritual hunger. And if we follow that hunger, our souls are filled. Here's a third or fourth thing that uh, I think accounts for the fact that Jesus draws people to himself. We're drawn to him because he is the light. This is John chapter 8 and verse 12. And this is where Jesus says, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. There's one thing I know about light, and that is that we are naturally drawn to light. We need light. Uh, One of the things that I've noticed recently, uh, every time I go to the doctor, he's asked me if I've been tested for vitamin, vitamin B. He wants to know what my vitamin D levels are. Well, light has an awful lot to do with whether you have sufficient levels of vitamin D in your body or not. And I know probably if you've gone to your regular doctor, they've, they've wanted to test you for that all that. Because they understand, you know, there has to be a certain amount of light a human being needs physically to feel well, to be well. And so we're, we need light. We're naturally drawn to light. And back about uh, 25 years ago, we were living in Detroit, Michigan. And, uh, you know, you go north here about 300 miles to get there. And uh, winters are a little bit longer, and it's a little more dreary, and a little bit uh, less sunlight and all that. And people spend more time indoors. And it's very easy to get into something called SAD. Now, it's interesting, seasonal affective disorder. People didn't know too much about it uh, 25 years ago. But uh, Serena was suffering from it. She just got blue in January and February when we, we were living in Detroit. And we had the good fortune or the blessing of going to a congregation where there was an engineer who worked with light. And when he found out that she was, she happened to mention to him, he said, no, I just feel kind of blue. I I can't figure out what's going on. He said, I know what it is. He said, you need uh, need more light, more sunlight. He said, it's called seasonal affective disorder. And he said, here's what you do. He said, have Steve go go over to Lowe's and get the uh, banks of those uh, you know, four-foot tubes, those lights, grow lights, put up a bank there, and you just go downstairs and sit under your lights for a couple hours a day. He said, you'll start feeling better real quick. It's full-spectrum lighting. It's what makes a plant grow, and it's, it's the kind of stuff you need, too. So uh, I went and got the uh, light fixtures and put them up, and pretty soon, Serena was feeling better. And so every, uh, every, when every winter rolled around, she'd be downstairs. She'd spend a couple hours down there sitting under the lights, under the grow lights, and uh, feeling better. But we need light. We're drawn to light. Uh, I just want you to imagine for a moment uh, about uh, that you're in a car and you're, you're driving on a long stretch of lonely highway at night. And your car breaks down and you don't have, don't have any cell service or anything like that. You can't get your car to run. can't get it to work right. And so you're stuck. And you get, you get out of your car and you look up this way and it's just dark. There's nothing going there. But you look back this way down the highway, and you see a faint glow of light down there. Let me ask you a question. Which way are you going to go? Which way are you going to walk? It's a no-brainer. You always walk to the light because there's a possibility of, of help there. There's some hope if you're walking toward the light, right? But if you're just walking off in darkness, you don't know if you're ever going to get to some, somebody or something that can help you. But if you can see the light, then that's the way that you walk. Well, the world is a dark place. 
And we don't notice that so much until we uh, break down on the highway. And I'll put that in quotation marks there. We break down on the highway. And the only direction when we get up, get out and take a look around, the only direction where we see any light at all is in the direction where Christ is. I am the light of the world. We're drawn to him because he is the light. And we know if we can just get to the light, we're probably going to get some help. There's hope over there where the light is. And so we are drawn to the light. And here's number five. We are drawn to Jesus because of his wisdom. Drawn to Jesus because of his wisdom. There is a prophecy back in Isaiah chapter 9 uh, concerning, uh, well, we know, we're looking back now, it was written 700, 750 years before Christ. But we know, looking back, that this has to be talking about Jesus. And he says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, you know, when we look at, the, at, at what he's going to be called, we learn something about Jesus from each one of these things. But the one that I've really never, never dwelt on or thought about very much is the first one. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Well, what is a wonderful counselor? Well, a wonderful counselor is someone that helps you sort things out. Uh, he's got some wisdom to impart. He's got some things to tell you. Uh, and, and, and he can help you work, work through problems. Uh, wisdom is the key here. And here's the deal. That was going to be the name of Jesus, the prophetic name. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And here's what, here's what I'm coming down to. Jesus has an answer for every question you have. He's a wonderful counselor. It may not be a specific answer for your particular situation, but there's something in what Jesus teaches, something in what he says, that will have a bearing on the problem that you're dealing with. Jesus has wisdom for every situation in life. He's a wonderful counselor. I'm drawn to people. I think we all are drawn to people who have real knowledge and real wisdom. I mean, I, I like listening to them. I like asking them questions. I like watching them do their thing. And I, there are a few times in my life when I saw what I knew was real wisdom. I saw something happen. I heard something happen. I was there. I witnessed it. And I've never forgotten it. And I wish that I had that, that same sort of thing going for me. But, you know, in First Kings chapter 10, the Queen of Sheba has uh, heard about Solomon uh, for, for years and years. Finally, she decides she's going to leave her kingdom. She's going to make the trip uh, to Solomon's court and, and witness what Solomon uh, does on a daily basis in his court. She's heard all about him. And so she does come. And so she spends a couple of days uh, there in his court listening and observing and uh, looking at what happens. And you know when she gets done, you know what she says? She says, you know, the half has never yet been told. He said, and usually, you know, I, I'm expecting that people will exaggerate things when they, when, you know, when they tell it and retell it and retell it. But he said, here's the truth about Solomon. He said, uh, we haven't even told the half yet. We, we, it's not exaggerated. We just haven't said enough. She was impressed by the wisdom that was displayed there in Solomon's court. And she said, I, and she had to come and see it. For three years, Jesus, day in and day out, was put to the test. He was given hard questions. There were people who were trying to, uh, 
trying their best to trap him and to put him in impossible situations. There were all these gotcha questions coming at him from all directions. You know, the politicians are already complaining about it. Uh, the, uh, you know, the reporters can ask these gotcha questions. They can ask it in such a way where there's no good answer. And they complain about it. Well, Jesus put up with that all the time. He had gotcha questions coming from all directions. But here's the deal. Jesus had an answer. Jesus had amazing wisdom, wonderful counselor. In John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, that's what our scripture reading was this morning. The Jewish rulers think they've got him cornered. They bring a woman uh, to him, discovered in the very act of adultery. And uh, they say to him, the law says that we ought to stone her. What do you say? And the thing about Jesus is at first he didn't say anything, which I think is the first one of the first things you need to know about wisdom. Be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. But that first one right there, be swift to hear. Listen, listen, listen before you speak. And Jesus has just been come up. This woman's been thrown down in front of him. And, and they say, the law says this. Uh, for it should happen to someone who's taken in the very act of adultery. What do you think we should do with her? And at first, Jesus says nothing. He just stoops down and writes on the ground. He's listening. He's thinking about how he's going to respond to this, which I think is step number one in doing something that actually is wise or saying something is wise. And so at first, he said nothing. And finally, he said 10 words. With 10 words, Jesus completely diffused this situation. 10 words. That's all it took. And here they are. Let him who is without sin, cast the first stone. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And so these uh, rulers that spent hours, maybe even days, planning and setting this up, they're trying to, what what can we do? How can we put him on the spot? Uh, What what kind of a gotcha situation can we create for him and expose him as uh, as a fraud and against the law and all this? And this is the perfect one. We know where this woman lives. We'll go get her. We'll, uh, we'll set this up. And in ten words, Jesus has blown it all to bits. You don't know how many times I wish I could say ten words and settle things like that. I'd love to be able to say ten words. But my thing is to say 10,000 words and make it worse. Okay? <laughs> the more you say, the worse it gets sometimes. Ask Jamie. Jamie back there. He knows that. Where I say 10,000, he'll say 20,000. He knows. But I'll say 10,000 words. I'll make it worse. We're drawn to Jesus because we are drawn to real wisdom. He had a complete mastery of every situation. And Jesus is still dispensing wisdom today. Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He dispenses his wisdom through the word of God. He dispenses his wisdom in answer to our prayers. James 1 and 5 says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberty, will not upbraid, and he shall receive. Don't have wisdom? God's wisdom? The wisdom of Jesus? Ask for it. He gives it to us. We could go on with many more ways that Jesus draws people to himself. I mean, back in John chapter 8, I believe it was verse 12, we could have talked about, or it was John 6, 
30, right there in the middle. We could have talked about the water of life. It's where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who eats me will never, never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. We could talk about the water of life, man. Jesus says, I'm your water. Jesus said, uh, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. How many of you would like to have a little rest sometime? You'd like to find some place where you could lay down and rest. Jesus says, I'm your rest. Jesus says, uh, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I mean, to be in the sheepfold, to have Jesus as your shepherd, man, you're safe. How many of you would like to be safe sometime? You'd like to go someplace safe. If you're with Jesus, then you're safe. But here's the question this morning. We're just talking about the drawing power of Jesus. What is it that makes us want to come to him? Makes uh, uh, people want to come to him? My question is, is he drawing you to himself today? Do you feel the pull of Jesus on your heart right now? And if you do, I, I don't want to say it. Don't fight it. Go with it. The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. The Bible says, this is 2 Corinthians 6 and 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. And maybe there's someone here uh, this morning, and you have felt the pull of Jesus on your heart. Maybe you are not a Christian. Well, you're being pulled to your salvation. You're being pulled to the ultimate answer for your life, to receive the forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, uh, a new life, a new status with God. All the inheritance that a, a child of God has, you're feeling the pull to come and receive that. If you come in faith and repentance, confessing that faith, ready to be baptized in the name of Jesus, you can receive it today. And maybe there's a Christian here, and I'm sure there are. Uh, you realize that there's some, some, some things you just need to get settled, some things that you've let go, and you feel Jesus calling you back calling you, drawing you to himself. And if that's the situation with you, we invite you to come. There'll be a couple of elders on each side right here. Uh, go to them, talk with them. Maybe it's something you need to talk about privately. Maybe, maybe it's something we can deal with right here, right now. But we'll, whatever your need is, we ask you to come. Let's